1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 282, The New Roman Empire with Antony Caldellis, part four, your questions. Professor Caldellis, welcome back for the final time in this series. Thank you, Robin. Final time for now. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I had a listener, actually, who said to me, like, uh, I want you to plug Professor Caldellis' podcast because you never do. So that's the first thing to say is if people have got hooked on hearing your voice, there are uh, hundred plus episodes of your podcast by and friends that they should absolutely listen to, um, where you interview fellow academics about, uh, Byzantine and Byzantine adjacent subjects. Um, it, it will be ideal for, for a lot of listeners to this podcast. And there are episodes that people who aren't really academically minded will enjoy as well. Um, There's one where you went through the stories of uh, macabre or odd uh, phenomena in Byzantium that get recorded, which was very entertaining.
2: Yes. So thank you for mentioning the podcast. It's very different from yours, obviously. And there are some episodes where I speak very little. It depends on my guests. Some of my guests are talkers and some are more into conversation. (laughs) So if they're talkers, I let them talk. That's fine. And... The episode you're referring to is some Byzantine stories of you know, horror stories that I wrote up based on the sources and had a bunch of colleagues and graduate students read. And so it's kind of like different voices and it's it's, it's interesting. Yeah, that was fun.
1: Yeah, no, it was great. Um, and, uh, you know, there are episodes that, uh, yeah, anyway, there's I could recommend lots of them, but um, the history of of people around the end of the First World War – saying they'll claim the Hagia Sophia when the Ottoman Empire falls apart. That really interested me. All the different churches saying, well, yeah. oh, maybe we'll take it. Yes, yeah. so there's just so many <laughs> so many interesting stories. Anyway, so thoroughly recommend by Zantium and Friends. We are here today, though, to answer your questions. And uh, we got uh, uh, over 100, I think, in the end. And so I had to draw lines um, as to what we were going to talk about today, because otherwise we'd be here for seven or eight hours, and we're not going to do that. So I have asked Professor Caldellis where he can to answer questions uh, quickly and to the point. So if you've asked a very thoughtful question that he answers in one word or one line, that's me pushing him to do that. It's uh, not his choice. Uh, So forgive forgive him if he's giving your question a a brief answer. Um, So with that in mind, I think we're just going to plow into them, that they cover all aspects of uh, Byzantium from from nitpicking to, to wild counterfactuals. So we will uh, try to tackle them all. Uh, so the first couple of questions were kind of in direct response to things that we've talked about in the past three episodes. So uh, we might need some detail on these. So I haven't I haven't written down listeners' names who asked these because I've amalgamated some questions, but you know who you are. So question number one is how do we square the idea that emperors are all-powerful um, as as in um, some of the chants and acclamations and rhetoric used about them, God's vice regent on earth, with the idea that they are ultimately accountable to the people and and are just an office holder who can be overthrown. What do we say to that?
2: Yes, yeah, so this is one of the more interesting dynamics of the culture. Um, and let me start by saying first of all that all pre-modern monarchies, claim some sort of divine sanction or support. This is not unusual. We've made it unusual in the case of this particular one by focusing so um, you know, intensely on the kinds of theories that developed around a relationship between the emperor and God. But it's not at all unusual. What's unusual in the case of the Roman imperial monarchy is this more populist conception of it as an office that is beholden to a constituency, and in this particular case, a national constituency of the Roman people. Um, And that is an unusual feature that is the product of the way in which this monarchy emerged from the ancient republic. In other words, the first monarchs were, Augustus and so forth, were having to pretend that they were sort of keeping up appearances in the sense that they're still just office holders in a certain sense. The Senate kept approving all of these offices for Augustus for five years and then for 10 years and then for another five years and so forth. And that created a bridge between the sort of populist ideology of the Republic that this has done for the Roman people uh, to the imperial monarchy, which retained that sense and it it's also part of the reason why it never developed a succession mechanism. Uh, we'll there's a later question about that um I understand. but um that's what's unique about this that it it had to juggle those two things. and from the very beginning, um how does a monarch legitimate himself in terms that make it you know kind of more um secure and and um and um, kind of absolute, I use the word in quotation marks, than just whoever happens to have the support of the relevant constituencies on the ground or in the street or in the hippodrome or wherever. And so this is part of the fundamental dynamic. And and let me just say that this doesn't mean that the culture was kind of unsynthesized in some kind of pathological way. Uh, All cultures have these kinds of odd ideological fissures where one moment we're playing by these rules and another moment we're playing by those other rules and often we never stop and think about how odd that is Uh, in american culture for example there's i mean just to talk about like basic ideas of american identity there's like the idea of the the rebel who you know strikes out on his own is a rugged individual right and that's like very very american but there's also the idea of You know, you play by the world, by the rules, you work hard, you get ahead through the system, the American dream, you get your mortgage, right? And these are both foundational ideas. And if you put them next to each other, you think, wow, these are completely different cultures. But they're not, they're part of the same one. And it's everywhere in every culture you look. Look at early monastic culture in Christianity. You've got this idea of, you know, um, extreme asceticism where you're denying the body, and it's almost like, it's almost prideful, like you're doing more extreme things than the other guy. You stayed up on that column for more years than the previous guy. But at the same time, it's a culture of humility and not drawing attention to yourself. And and look at just the life of St. Anthony, right? In the first text that we have of a, of a Christian saint, he's like trying to remove himself from the world and live in isolation and is drawing crowds around him all the time. So, again, the interesting kind of cultural analysis is the kind that identifies these kind of, let's just call them ideological tensions or contradictions and sees how everything plays out between them. And this tension is precisely one of the more interesting parts of the Byzantine imperial monarchy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's... uh... It's one that goes on and on that. And I think um that's what made your work so appealing to me in the first place that you were exploring that idea instead of describing someone as, you know, a, a semi-deity figure who then got overthrown and everyone just accepted it. And it's like, okay, that's odd. And then you just don't think about it. And right. Yeah. Besides, no one regarded the Emperor as
2: all powerful, by the way. I mean, this was It was—he was a powerful, you know, political figure. But I don't think that anyone ever thought that these emperors were anything more than just human beings.
1: Yeah. Anyway. Absolutely. So the next question um, is similarly picking you up on things you've said and wanting more. So uh, the listener says, "I've heard." you say two statements that sound quite similar to me, but one Professor Kaldas disagreed with and the other one he agreed with. So statement one, um, the peasants probably didn't even notice their country was conquered by the Persians. And statement two is, the vast majority of Christians had no opinion or no interest in the theological conflicts of the church. So the Arians, Monophysites, so on. Um, So one statement you disagreed with (laughs) the peasants did care and noticed that they'd been conquered by the persians but something you did agree with was that the the vast majority of people let's say um were not necessarily as partisans of particular uh christian causes so can you explain uh (laughs) explain why why that is the case why one agrees one disagrees
2: sure i'm not entirely sure why these sound so similar To our listener, they sound very different to me. Um, I would rephrase the second one. Like what I said was not that the vast majority of Christians were uninterested in these theological controversies or ignorant of them, but rather that they didn't belong to the more radicals. Like they weren't activists about it. They didn't get worked Mm. up about it, and they didn't necessarily fight each other um, over them.
1: Uh, Can I? Can I jump in? Sorry. Yeah. Just because. Uh, I think what they're getting at is that you're speaking about the people who we don't hear from. So you're saying ah. I the, the common masses did notice the Persians had conquered them and it did bother them and they they were affected by it. And and then similarly, the masses' feelings about Christianity. And so I guess they're getting at how can you, what is it about the sources that tells you that one thing is true and what, that they did care about being conquered but they didn't necessarily care about I guess that's what they're getting at. Um,
2: oh, I see. um yeah, if we're talking about like if the question is defined in terms of the people we don't hear from in the sources or very much, then it's a very difficult question either way. Mm. Um, and it involves a synthetic argument that draws on all of our sources and tries to tease out implications and you know so forth. So that can get us into a very long discussion of, let's just say um you know why i think that people were directly impacted by conquest and why most people i think i think they were aware of course that these theological controversies were going on but most people weren't personally invested in them um and let's just say that um and i'll leave it at this though it's a good question and it merits much more discussion, but I'll limit my answer to this. That there was no way to avoid the consequences of foreign conquest in terms of the kinds of violence that you were subjected to, even arbitrary violence, um, and to whom you paid taxes or, you know, had your possessions stolen, your your friends and families, you know, uh, beaten and drafted and whatever, and this happened all the time. That is, your your legal status, your economic status, and your social status were directly dependent um, on who ruled the lands you lived in. And I think this impacted everyone pretty directly and immediately. Whereas taking part in a theological controversy was more a matter of choice you could choose to like just you know whistle past the graveyard if you didn't want to get involved and no one would pressure you to get involved um and it would so that produced um much smaller groups of very invested people um you know who were you know fighting on one side or the other i think everybody was aware that these things were going on uh, the number of people who understood the issues was very small, um, <clears throat> whereas it's perfectly clear when some you know Persians show up with men with sticks and they beat you up and take your cow. I, you know, so I think there's a kind of asymmetry in the agency here. Uh, one is being imposed on you; the other is much more a matter of choosing to take part in something. So I, I, I'll leave it at that.
1: I mean, I you know at I, 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 I pains to keep adding to things, but I. I think also the, there's part of what the question's getting at is the idea that someone living on their farm is not affected by wider society, that they're just getting by and the the authorities are just operating out of reach. And I think one of the things you were getting at with the evidence from, say, the Egyptian papyri and things is that a lot of people in the Roman Empire were Very affected, or and and because they were property owners and they they weren't maybe a medieval serf in the Western European imagination, they had to be more active in kind of defending what they had or negotiating with tax collectors and so on. I don't know, there there might be something there that,
2: yes, this takes us to a problem that is going to be the subject of a, a later book that I'm going to write. I have most of the evidence for it, but it comes down to this. Were there, quote, isolated people in this society? And by that, I mean, mostly the majority of the population who's agricultural, like, quote, peasants. How deeply immersed were they in sort of state institutions and interactions with, um, uh, you know, officials of the state, the church, the army, and so forth? And my answer is categorically deeply deeply enmeshed in those systems there were no isolated people who you know didn't know what the tax rate was this year and more than that in that book i will argue that their fundamental notions of time how they measured it what what the annual cycle and calendar was Their notions of space like what is here and there where are boundaries between not just my land my village my town my province my like what what territory or group do i belong to their sense of value what what is the value of things how much do they cost how do i measure value all of those things were impossible without the apparatus for for measuring classifying valuing that ultimately was linked to state um, procedures from taxes to the economy to coins to the army and so forth—they were deeply enmeshed in this. I don't believe there were any isolated peasants in the society.
1: Mm. Well, again, I, not to lengthen this too much, but I think the listener's question then, and I think I think there's another question coming later, would be how much is that person on the farm affected by the theological controversies? Because wh- one of the things you um, explain well in the book is that. A lot of these controversies develop in a city around a bishop who is like a sort of local celebrity and thought leader. And so if someone in Antioch is making a big um, theological point that's getting everyone rattled, is someone in uh, (laughs) or I'm trying to remember my Syrian geography, you know, is someone in a town 50, 100 miles away hearing about that or are they hearing about that only later? And and is someone in the fields outside the town hearing about that? And I I mean, it's obviously impossible to answer for every bit of the empire, but I guess that's what the question is kind of getting at. You can't avoid the Persians, but can you avoid theological discussion?
2: I think it would be difficult to avoid hearing about them and hearing that they were happening. But it none of this compelled you to take part in it or be involved. So yes you knew that there were okay so you knew that there were um you know f- fans of michigan state who don't like the fans of university of michigan or whatever right notre dame versus michigan or ohio state versus michigan if you're one of them then you're in part of that story if you're not this affects you in that you hear some things every once in a while now if a rampaging mob of hooligans burns your car after a game because their team lost then it does affect you more personally. But that's not going to happen to a person normally, statistically. And if it does, it'll be once in a lifetime that your car will be burned by hooligans out of control. And it's the same with a theological riot, let's say. I mean, yeah, you can get caught up in it, probably not out in the fields and villages. This stuff doesn't, you know, get there. But of course they knew because they had local priests and their local priests learn from their bishop what the correct theology is and who the agents of Satan are, and they hear about it in the church. You know. and then they go home. Do they care? Eh. Well,
1: we will I think we're gonna I think there's another question about local churches later on. So yes, uh, yeah, very good. Um, uh, so the next question is about the succession mechanism, um which we just touched on. So uh, Diocletian, of course, tried to instigate. Uh, the tetrarchy, the idea that there'd be two emperors who would then hand off to their two junior emperors. Um, And so the question is, apart from Diocletian, did anyone else ever try to create a mechanism for succession? And, And if they had, do you think it would have provided more stability for the empire?
2: So this is a great question, and it requires that we unpack what we think of as the succession mechanism. So There is no succession mechanism, so Diocletian couldn't have tried to change it. Let me put it differently. Every emperor essentially reinvented the succession mechanism, both in how he came to power and also how he made provisions for the succession after him, if he did. So Diocletian had his mechanism, which was we, we focus on it because it was so unusual compared to the others and so ambitious in trying to, um, you know, create a kind of stability to it, uh, and it failed. And then Constantine comes along, and he appoints his sons as his successors. And was, Constantine recreates the Tetrarchy just within his own family. And then those sons all kill each other and whatever, and that fails. <laughs> so all of the mechanisms essentially fail, and they always have to be reinvented. If the question is, did other emperors try something so ambitious, or you know, it's like the long arm of the of the law can can an emperor reach into the future, right, and try to determine the succession, you know, one or two or three successions to come? Well, not really. You know, Manuel uh, the First nos tried something with a Hungarian uh, prince. uh, And and it was very unpopular because Romans don't accept non-Romans as emperors. Um, Then there were some schemes and the Paleologi tried every once in a while. In fact, in the late 14th century, there was this they hatched this plan. There there were two factions of competing Paleologian and and they hatched this plan that was mediated by Genoa or Venice. I don't know what one of the two as a kind of arbiter that the succession would alternate in like among the between the two different branches of the paleologi. So you know, father A, then father B, then son A, then son B, and so it didn't happen. Uh, but it was a, yeah, you, know, you occasionally get these kinds of ideas. Otherwise, um, the succession is ad hoc always, um, and as to whether a different mechanism, would provide more stability. Well, first of all, I would say there isn't a mechanism. So I don't, like in a certain sense, any mechanism would have been more stable than no mechanism. But this is there's a very big caveat here, which is that what kind of stability are we talking about? Because this Roman polity is in a certain sense, the most stable or one of the most stable in all of world history. The person who sat on the throne was always vulnerable, but the whole structure of the thing, the government, you know, the institutions, the framework for governance and so forth, those were extremely stable. So what problem are we trying to solve by making the succession more regular when the succession is essentially a form of very, very messy election that sometimes gets violent, but it doesn't affect very much else most of the time? Some of the time, it was extremely damaging. We've talked about some of those cases, right? So in the 1070s, when they're losing Asia Minor, now there's, they're fighting over the succession, like they have all these usurpations at the same time. Or um, the Fourth Crusade was the product of precisely these kinds of things. So there are moments when this uncertainty about who is entitled or who the legitimate emperor is causes incredible damage, but they're very specific moments. In fact, Heraclius and Phocas in the early seventh century is another one, very damaging. Uh, but I think like those are the three main ones that are very damaging, those three. And they, they correlate with <laughs> the greatest losses that, that that state suffered. So, yes. But for most of the time, you have a very messy succession non system with a very stable uh, governmental apparatus. So, again, I mean, I'm not sure that the, that the succession problem would have been, that, that the succession is the problem that you would need to solve necessarily. But anyway, I think I've answered the...
1: You, you absolutely, you've actually zeroed in, I think, on why that bugs the listeners so much, because obviously the podcast is is very narrative-driven. So the listeners are searching for an answer to that. If the, everyone could have just stayed on uh, Romanos Theogianis' side... Could he have rebuilt the situation? And what I would say to the listeners is just because there is one ruler doesn't necessarily mean everyone will be on their side and will fight to the death. Like in any state, there are power struggles, there are factions, there are armies who don't want to leave one area to fight in another area. Um, and I, the, Mark Wito, um, wrote a great article about this, which I talked about in episode 200, where he he pointed out that... that the leaders of other states, uh, you know the Fatimid Caliphate, the Holy Roman emperors, the French and English Kings did have longer lifespans than Roman emperors. Um, so you could say well they have more stable states but that doesn't doesn't mean each of those leaders had the uh complete support of everyone within the state. the Fatimid Caliphate sort of fell apart even though it had very long serving, um, leaders because they devolved power to someone else. Whereas the Roman emperors were all, you know, were the, the the CEO of the state. So if you wanted to make a change, you had to get rid of them. Whereas you know, French kings ruled for long times where large parts of France ignored what the king was saying. So it, exactly yeah. to your point, it's what kind of stability are you looking for? And
2: worse than just people ignoring the, let's say, hered- stable hereditary monarch or that person not having much support is that with the, a stable hereditary system, you will very quickly begin to get incompetence, idiots, um, you know, frivolous non entities around whom a court apparatus of handlers will emerge, who will make the whole thing very, very corrupt and remote and aloof, from, and in fact detached from concerns that are happening on the ground, the the hereditary monarch will very soon become like essentially a prisoner of the palace. Look at very many hereditary monarchies in history where that happens. And so the monarchy becomes in most cases somewhat irrelevant to who's holding power, which devolves to the second rank where you have the same kind of instability because all of the courtiers are fighting each other. Whereas consider the fact that in Constantinople, you periodically get these new men who are very experienced. They've come up through the ranks often. They're from the provinces. They have actual skills at doing things. Otherwise, you're not easily just going to become the emperor in Constantinople just by being in the right place at the right time. I mean, it can happen, like, you know, Michael IV or something. But um, usually you get very experienced, capable men who know what's going on on the ground. They're not detached. They're not easy to handle. And you have this extraordinary phenomenon of people like Nikiforos First, Nicephorus I, a financial official Like how many monarchies on that scale in world history do you know where the financial official became emperor and in fact implemented reforms that provided incredible, um, uh, you know, uh, assets for the state to survive and thrive for centuries to come. Nikiforos' reforms were really, really crucial. And if you look at him, he's a contemporary of Charlemagne on the one hand and Harun al-Rashid on the other. Were far more glamorous imperial, you know, figures and whatever, whatever, and their states at that time seemed poised to just sort of take the reins of the future and squeeze Byzantium between them. And yet, what happens? Both of those empires collapse within a couple of generations, just fall into fragments, and you have this this thing in the middle that was put on new foundations by this financial official, and it. For centuries to come, it just grows and grows and grows and and becomes more and more prosperous. That would not happen in Japan or Capetian France or even the Abbasid Caliphate. It just wouldn't happen. So I mentioned earlier some of the drawbacks, but this is one of the
1: advantages. Brilliant. Um, So the fact that the empire lasted so long leads to the next question. And which is another um, evergreen listener question, I think. Which is what is something that a Roman living under Augustus and a Roman living under Constantine the Eleventh would mutually identify with as belonging to both of them? So, in other words, what makes them both Roman?
2: Yeah. So, I had some trouble parsing the, that phrase "mutually identify with as belonging to both." But anyway, I think we understand the the point. Like, what could if they were to? Um, uh, have a conversation and ask each other hey in what way are we similar because there's some ways in which we're not um uh, what would what would that be and this is a very interesting question i sometimes actually even think about these kinds of things so we're talking about people who are 1500 years apart right and let's say one is from rome and one is from new rome constantinople now the interesting thing is that the roman under augustus especially from Ro- from rome is there's a very good chance that this person speaks Greek. Rome was the second largest city of, in terms of Greek population in the Mediterranean at the time. The first being Alexandria. Because Rome was full of Greek speakers. For example, this is why Paul's letter to Romans is is written and sent in Greek. So, just to throw off modern kind of uh, intuitions and stereotypes, I'm going to assume that this Roman speaks Greek. Augustus did too, for that matter. So. These people can actually have a conversation, and I think they could probably understand each other um, if the Roman from the 15th century has a little bit of education. Even a church education is enough, I think they would be able to communicate, which in itself is astonishing because I don't know that there are many people in the world who could communicate with someone from 1,500 years ago in their spoken language. Uh, So I think that by itself would provide a great deal of sort of mutual understanding and that oh we kind of belong in the same you know roughly to the same kind of uh, group um so um first of all they would have the same name for the group they belong to romeos um they would recognize that they have a a monarch um a greek speaker would presumably have understood Augustus as a Vasilevs. Um, The Roman emperors are called that very soon after Augustus, and that's just because of the sources we have. It's quite possible that, you know, by the end of Augustus' reign, he was being called that on the streets in the, in the Greek East. Um, so they would have recognized that they both belonged to the polity of the Romans that had a Vasilevus or a monarch. It also would have had a Senate. They could identify their senators by name. Um, the one lived in Rome, the other in New Rome. That would have been interesting to the one from Rome. Um, their monarch would have also been called Augustos, uh, which is a term that a 15th century Roman would have understood, either, both in its Latin form, Augustos, or in the Greek translation, Sevastos, which was still a court title <laughs> um, in at that time. Um, and they would have also realized that they had a similar sense of the history of their group. In other words, they say, "Oh, I'm a Roman, you're a Roman. are we the same kind of Romans? Well, I don't know when does your story start? Well, you know the Trojans left from Troy and they went to Italy, yeah yeah, yeah, that's the same thing that our chronicles say too um so you know if he'd read Manassis or something and any later you know East Roman chronicle would have had the same kind of beginning and it's like oh yeah Aeneas and 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 Romulus and 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 yeah, and picks up from there so they would have um they would have had that um and they would have also had a very similar kind of Roman pride. Um, both Romans at the time of Augustus and in the 15th century had were, you know, a, a great deal of pride in the Roman name, in what it meant to be Roman, as being more more civilized um, than other people. And yeah, it's kind of ethnocentric and chauvinistic, but yet yeah, they would have had that. That's what makes you know people find that they belong to the same group and have it in common. They would, however, have differed in a great deal. I mean, and, and Christianity would have been one of them. This would have taken some explaining. <laughs> but of course you could say, oh, well, the God I worship was actually born at your time <laughs> um, during Augustus's reign. So I think that would have at least provided a kind of bridge that this is not a completely different world. Um, but anyway, there's a lot, and there are other things too. But I think that those things that I mentioned no other people in the world would have claimed any of those things so they're very distinctive to this group
1: yeah that's interesting as you're talking i was thinking they would presumably have a very similar view of what was in and out like civilization barbarism this is the way someone should be living they would have agreed on um maybe that's too generic for what the listener's asking but that kind of value of living in a city or and, and raising up education and things, you know, would have been... Absolutely,
2: yes. Yeah. Um, they had the same Greek education. If we're talking about educated elites, they would have been reading the same texts. These are the only people in the world who can, say, read Homer or have read Homer or know Greek. Um, so uh, that's also something that they have in common.
1: So speaking of Christians, our next section of questions are all about Christianity. Um the first one hopefully is a quick answer because we talked about Christians living in Iraq Mesopotamia when Heraclius turns up he meets you know Christian leaders were there any Zoroastrians living in the Roman empire
3: Yes
2: but only in the I mean there could always have been groups and or individuals you know that's very difficult to track um but in terms of recognizable groups The last that I know of are in the 4th century, um, like in the areas around Cappadocia and such. And it's possible that these are communities that are remnants of the old Achaemenid Empire, like way back before Alexander. Right. Uh, You know, Cappadocia was a kind of very mixed area for a while. It becomes much more homogenized as East Roman history moves forward. But yeah, there are some references to them, but only in the very beginning, unless I'm sort of missing something. I mean, so the Kuramites who enter in the ninth century, um, so these are refugees from um, some rebel wars against the um, Abbasids. Um, their religion was a kind of mix of old Zoro- folk Zoroastrianism and Islam. Uh, so, yeah, I guess those groups too, but when they enter, they mostly convert to Orthodoxy and like, mm. their religion leaves no traces that we can see in in... Um, In uh, Constantinople or the provinces or anything like that.
1: No. Okay. Uh, So, was Christianity the only religion within the Roman world that could have unified and converted all of its people?
2: Wait, Christianity unified it.
1: People
2: now. I don't think it did. Well. Well. Yes. Maybe it did. It it did so, but only at great cost, right? I mean, in a certain sense, it was the Arab conquest that did that, that removed the territories from the empire where the failure of Christianity to unify the population was most evident, leaving the territories behind where that had happened. Um, Well, where that had happened around Chalcedon, I should say. So, is Christianity the only religion that could have? Well, yes, it's the only one that could have, because it's the only one that would have wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Non-Christian religions are not about unifying people or you know rallying consensus around one God or converting or, and so forth. So it's just not on the agenda of, of non-Christian groups. Um well, yeah, very, yeah, not even Judaism, um, which was open to converts, but not like trying to get, win them over. Um, so, yeah, it was the only one that could have. It mostly didn't, but it certainly tried. Um, anyway, that that's, that's all I can say.
1: So something like the cult of Sol Invictus doesn't have the... Universalizing message of Christianity. It doesn't have something. Well, again,
2: it depends on what we mean by that. Mm. If we mean exclusive universalizing, mm. then yes, because it, it doesn't have it. But the cult of Sol Invictus, uh, promoted by a number of emperors in the third and fourth centuries, uh, insofar as everyone in the empire was perfectly happy to see the emperor associated with Sol and probably attend some religious festival or celebration in which, you know, soul was celebrated. If we, if you use that, um, lowercase as it were universalism and stuff, is everyone willing to do this? Then yes, they are. And that, in that sense, this is a far more universe, successfully universal cult than Christianity because Christianity creates divisions. It always creates divisions.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It, I mean, it, I, I don't want to be misunderstood here. It, it creates a great deal of solidarity among larger groups than any other cult in the past, but it also creates divisions. And so you have to take those together. Um, And, you know, the history of Christianity always takes those together. Whereas something like uh, the worship of Zeus, it's not trying to gain converts or anything, but it's also perfectly easy for everyone to participate in it to some degree and is less controversial. And so it doesn't create divisions. It doesn't create like, you know, personal identities or anything. It doesn't create, it's not a rallying point. It doesn't create solidarities, but it, it also doesn't create divisions. And so I don't know, you, you have to pick what version of universalism
1: you want here. Well, it's really interesting because you've turned – the listener's question to me sounds like it's saying, could an emperor have picked up a different religion and used it to convert and unify everyone? And you're kind of reversing the question saying no other cult had any interest in doing that. It was only Christianity's claim that this is the only god, you shall have no other god but me, that forced the Romans to say, fine, we'll make you the sole religion to stop you from – <laughs> trying to sort of push other cults out.
2: Yes, but let me give you a let me give you a different um, hypothetical. It's not no, it's not a hypothetical. Um, this is in fact something that is largely missing from the scholarship on uh, the transition from from quote paganism to Christianity. What if I told you that yes? Um, emperors could have chosen a different religion, and it was the Roman religion. If you look at the third and early fourth century, there are lots of references and imperial pronouncements to the religion of the Romans and the Roman religion. And the emperors who persecuted Christianity contrast the Roman religion with Christianity. And they're saying, I'm simplifying things, but we're persecuting Christianity because it's an enemy of Roman religion. What do they mean by Roman religion? Well, It's hard to know, but presumably they mean all the religions that the other Romans are practicing. They just would just group it together and we'll call it the religion or sometimes the religions of the Romans, like the forms of cult and worship. So what if I said to you, yes, they could have done that. Let's suppose the persecutions had been successful and Christianity had been reduced to just a very small minority and it never gained power. Well, we wouldn't be asking this question, first of all, because it's a very Christian type of question. But you could analytically say, yes, the Roman emperors managed to, you know, um, quote, unify the empire around Roman religion, which of course takes a thousand different forms in all of the different places. And here's another twist. I could say to you that, yes, in fact, the Roman emperors did manage to successfully impose Roman religion on everybody. It's just that by the time they did that, it was Christianity. Mm. In other words, the same way that in the third century, like the, the quote persecutors are claiming to be defending or promoting Roman religion, you know, like Constantine and his heirs are doing the same thing. When Theodosius mandates Christianity in 380, he does it as the, the Roman religion. Mm. He yeah. says, This is the religion that St. Peter gave to the Romans. Mm. And you start finding texts after that, which just call it the religion of the Romans, i.e. Christianity. So they did. I mean, anyway, sorry. I'm just, I'm kind of messing with your audience here.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's why they need to read the book. Um, okay, well, this is uh, this episode is already becoming a problem because I'm finding your answers very interesting and in responding to them, which is lengthening the answers to every question. Uh. So, this is the same topic. How did Christianity displace the the Roman religion, the traditional paganism of the Romans, so quickly? Why was there not more pushback from particular groups or from a usurping general? So, uh, someone who would stand up and say, I'm going to overthrow you in the name of the following 17 cults that I'm standing up for.
2: Well, there was, right? I mean, that's what Julian was. Yeah. And... Christianity did not displace Roman religion so quickly. It took five centuries, essentially. I mean, you know, if you start from the crucifixion, let's put it in the 30s, to the point where non-Christians are a significant minority, but a, but but a minority nonetheless, like around 500. I mean, you still have campaigns of mass conversions going on in Asia Minor in the mid-6th century. You still have pagan officials all in Justinian's administration. He's trying to, you know, ferret them out. And so that is, what, 470 years. Let's say it's 500 years. 500 years is not quickly. It takes a long time, right? Right. Um, even in the early fifth century where after a century of Christian emperors we're still probably talking about 50/50. Uh, so I think the question should be like, why does it take so long? <laughs> <laughs> um, especially when after Constantine, it enjoys all of the advantages of imperial support. Like there were so many incentives to to join up especially at the higher ranks and once once the higher ranks go then you know everybody further down um normally t- tends to follow and why would they do that well because one of the drivers of conversion especially after constantine is just simply success in other words why are you attached to one religion rather than another well because presumably worshiping those gods, you know brings you the kinds of benefits or stability or you don't want to disturb the order of things by offending the gods, and then suddenly barbarians will show up. There'll be droughts. There'll be plagues. Whatever, whatever, right? But if you see that, wait a minute. That emperor professes a, a faith in 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 Christ, Constantine, and he was super successful. Like won all of his wars, founded cities, is praised and honored. Whatever, gold, you know, economy, you name it. And his successors continue these same policies and the lightning is not striking them down. And the one, you know, uh, general who tried to reverse all of it's Julian, who interesting figure, but he's just cut down in battle in Persia within a year and a half. You're like, well, I, I don't know. I mean, why? And I'm simplifying here incredibly, but like why am I afraid of joining what seems to be the winning ticket here? Am I afraid that something bad's going to happen to me if I renounce the old gods? But look, those people who have renounced the old gods are swimming in cash. So, and like, there's a, we've had a, a century now of a track record where, well, the sky isn't falling on these Christians. Okay, like it began in the fifth century, but 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 by then the tide had turned. Um, So I'm simplifying, but I think that's kind of how the conversion seems to happen after that. A lot of incentives for conversion, and if you start to wonder why you're not converting, other than just tradition, it's kind of hard to find a reason in that context.
1: Yeah, and I think in your answer as well, when you talk about the survival of so many pagans you're kind of giving away that lots of, for lots of people, they didn't have to change much. So why wasn't there pushback? Well, if you, if no one's coming around your house to explore what you're doing and you just carry on doing what you're doing and you live in, in the countryside, so you're not you right. know, exposed to crowds marching around, then you didn't have to change. So why would you stick your neck out to fight for this cause? And you know,
2: yeah, there aren't, many like active campaigns of you know missionary activity inside the empire where you go out and you convert the whatever it, it, this was something that was really left to individual initiative and um it's it's not i think how the empire was christianized it was not done through internal missions or forcing people or whatever
1: i'm just looking at the next next question and realizing how how vast a question it is um was christianity a net positive for the empire and the listener has provided some extra detail which again we've already kind of (laughs) questioned but you know was there advantages to following a single religion e.g greater cohesion of the population Mm -hmm. Uh, versus the disadvantages, which is that it didn't provide greater cohesion for the population, basically. Um, and again, would would a different religion have, you know, polytheistic pagan practices have have had more advantages? This is a massive question.
3: It
2: is. Um, I, I think we can reduce it to a few key points here, and it always depends on, of course, advantages for what. Like, what are you trying to accomplish here? Is it a net positive? How do you measure that? So, uh, yeah, I'm willing to um, to concede that there are some so there's some obvious things you can say here. Um, Obviously, uh, when you're an embattled empire or state, uh, let's say in the seventh, eighth, ninth centuries, and you're sort of fending off enemies who do want to conquer your territory. You know, take your people, whatever. You know, enslave your people, whatever. It's definitely an advantage for you to be unified by something like that—a very, you know, strongly emotive force of identification and and loyalty to each other. When you're facing I don't, Muslims on the one side and you know heathen Bulgars on the other, um, because then you know Roman and Christian overlap; they're mutually reinforcing sources of support and. Cohesion, absolutely. Um, So you you can make lots of arguments that way in in different contexts in the army and the the political system and so forth. On the other hand, there are definitely disadvantages. Um, As I said, Christianity tends to create division. Um, And so in contrast to the polytheistic system, you now have heretical and dissident groups uh, whom you have to persecute. Um, some of them may decide to flee and take up arms against you, like the Paulicians in the ninth century. This is rare, but, you know, it does happen. Um, you have to devote resources to sort of stamping out heresies. Um, you you lose a lot of talent in some cases. Um, so, you know, it's, it's both unifying and divisive in different ways. Um, polytheistic east roman empire would is a counterfactual that's very difficult to parse but it's not as if the gods of the old gods of rome didn't provide a rallying point when they were at war with persians or celts or whatever like ancient rome never lost its cohesion because in times of peace you can say oh your celtic god so and so is the same as my roman god so and so like it's not that's not that's not really a problem um anyway again it depends on the context and on what you're trying to accomplish.
1: Um, I think, you know, um, <clears throat> uh, Tom Holland's recent book, Acts, you know, like one of the arguments he makes is that the Roman emperors, by moving out of Rome and, you know, like Hadrian touring the provinces, end up on some level feeling like we need some unifying Romanness that everyone can sign up to, and does Christianity provide that in a way? Do you do you see that? Because that's sort of in the listener's question. That again, that did the state need something that would apply to everyone to keep the state? I together? don't.
2: I don't know if, like, in a, just in a purely sort of abstract sense, um, like seeing it as a detached scholar, that, that that would have been necessary. But I do think that. Constantine was thinking something like that. Mm. Um, And Constantine's idea, if you you read all of the texts that he issued and that are associated with him, it's not so much that his main idea was not so much Christianity specifically, though it was for him, but the way he presents it is like good religion. Like he had a distinction between good religion and bad religion. The good religion happened to be Christianity, but there were sort of some, almost like some independent criteria for what that was. And um, you, you can find some of them in, like, Lectantius, the Divine Institute. This is a professor of Latin who wrote a th- uh, kind of quasi-theological work, the Divine Institutes, which he later ded- dedicated to Constantine when he was still in the East. So, Sorry, in the West. and um, And it has this kind of idea, too, that there's this good religion that they're good and bad religious practices and that Rome should be associated with the good ones. And, and Lactantius creates this model for a Christian Roman synthesis. And it, there's good reason to think that Constantine was like on board with that. In other words, that he saw good religion as something that supports the empire specific. Um, which is in part why when when Christianity is fully identified with the imperial order in, in, in the empire, Christian writers gradually you can see this during the fourth century they gradually narrow like they start with this very kind of let's say ecumenical vision of Christianity spreading to all the nations and the Indians and the whatever whatever and especially like after Adrianople they're like a very romanocentric and and are kind of hostile to barbarians even when those barbarians are Christian uh, so there there does uh, an alignment does happen there but anyway we're this is a this can take us far from the question that even the listener asked
1: yeah well another big question uh, did christianity improve the morality of the roman people again the listeners provided some context for this question in saying um outlawing sort of blood sports gladiata- gladiators um certain kinds of executions, giving more to the poor, uh, you know, versus mm, burning heretics or (laughs) uh, blinding people. Uh, That's sort of where their their mind is.
2: Yes. And actually, it's a very interesting question. And I know that most scholars will sort of tend to scoff at this kind of thing, especially when we hear the word morality. We've been trained to like, you know, roll our eyes and whatever. But I actually will take this seriously. Because I do, um, and first of all, let's burning heretics. Uh, this was so rare that I would not, I would not even put it in the ledger. Um, in 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 the East, in medieval Western Europe or modern Europe, that's a whole other thing. But we're not talking about them. So, um, and besides, um, how should I put this? any actions taken by the state against heretics or blinding rebels and things like that are done by the state and i wouldn't want to um assess sort of the let's say a broad christian impact on sort of popular morality by things that emperors and generals did which are not reflective of like the anyway whatever i think the the point is is clear um and I think about it like this way. So, yes, obviously, ancient Romans are, if you look at them in some contexts, like cheering on death matches in the arena or throwing condemned criminals to be torn apart by wild animals and cheering and enjoying it and treating it as entertainment, you, you think, ah, uh, <laughs> this, uh, anyway. And I sometimes think to myself, if I were to meet and spend like a few days with these people, let's say someone from the 10th century, average Roman from the 10th century, average Roman from the time of Caesar, w- would I be significantly more appalled at the kinds of things that the latter, the one under Caesar, would, would just find normal or entertaining or fun or whatever? I think yes. I think so. Like, if I... If, if I had to make a choice, like who marries my daughter, for example, who's a better person to like a decent human being on a basic level when it comes to things like this? It, it, it would have to be the, the, the later Byzantine one. It
1: just would. Um, Is that a reflection of your Christianized morality, though, lining up better with that 10th century Byzantine?
2: Yes, it would have to be.
1: Because <laughs> as soon as I read the question, I was like, How do we define what's better morality?
2: Well, I mean, I can,
1: Mm. I'll I'll tell you,
2: even if you look at like ancient philosophers, Mm. they found all of that stuff hideous, right? Now, maybe they didn't have the inclination or the power to do anything about it, but they did. Um, And so do I. And so I'll I'll take them (laughs) over the people in the arena uh, but in the 10th century, we just don't have the arena. Like that's not a that's not a spectacle. Now they did other things that are problematic, like the parades of infamy and things like this, where people, you know, average people did participate in here. I'm not saying they're right, uh, but definitely some of the um, um, you know m- more horrid excesses of ancient culture um, were abolished. <sighs> That's maybe that's not much. Maybe that's not too much. Their armies committed atrocities in both periods. The uh, the political culture was potentially always violent, so it's not much, but it's something. And I wouldn't right like even if we're talking about like at least a rhetorical commitment to compassion and charity to the poor and and th- there's another question about this, so we'll get to that. But I I think even on that score the. Average morality um, of later East Romans are, is better.
1: Fair enough. Well, it, speaking of gladiatorial combat, did Christianity put an end to that, or had it already gone out of fashion?
2: It's a little bit of both. We don't actually know how and why, or even exactly when it disappeared, but it does appear to be a combination of uh, changing tastes and entertainment and um, it, uh, finances. This was very expensive. Um, endowments for these kinds of expenses had dried up in a lot of places and imperial disapproval, which was not rigorously enforced or anything. Um, and it they continued into late antiquity. You still have references, but I think they were drying up. So it's a combination of those things.
1: Yeah. It's part of the era of sort of mass expansion of the Roman state. You're getting slaves cheaper than you are hundreds of years later. I don't know.
2: Yeah. Well, gladiatorial combat is a, is, is not, um, I wouldn't put it squarely under the sort of slave occupation rubric, even in the early Roman empire. Um, yeah. n- not all gladiators were slaves. Um, some regarded themselves as celebrities. Um, in fact, there are even people like free people who volunteered, like they, I don't know, some sort of fight club. I don't know. <laughs> um, But, uh, yeah there was a real craze for these things even in the east even in the greek east it was like uh it was part of what we might call romanization mm. yeah
1: um so going back to uh charity and and positive things uh with its hospitals orphanages and grain dole would you consider the new roman empire the first welfare state in history In
2: a certain sense, yes. Uh, Obviously, it didn't have the infrastructure of a welfare state. And I mean, proto welfare state, perhaps. There were specific groups that were um, helped, uh, advantaged by these institutions, not like, there wasn't like a commitment that everybody gets, you know, like, we, we start at the bottom, we have a safety net, things like that. No, that didn't exist. There, there's specific institutions that target specific um, d- disadvantaged groups um, in this way. But even that is significant, right? It's It's not something that ancient states did. And the hospitals were impressive. Um, the orphanage in Constantinople was a major institution, and then there's all of these others: leprosaria and homes for old people, and and all the and the monasteries also. Many of them perform these kinds of functions as part of their charitable mission. Um, they would you know take care of old people. You would, often you would retire to a you you weren't a monk. You didn't you know take the habit or anything, but you would. Either make a significant donation or bring your property and join it to the assets of the monastery. And you got to live there and were taken care of by the monks, even though you were a kind of secular resident. So this happened too. Um, it's, it's a very interesting um, uh, kind of social practice that we see. And in part, you can say this is because of um, Christian values, and definitely was. But that's not the only thing that was going on. What's going on is that, especially after the universalization of Roman citizenship, the emperors cease. So the distinction between Romans and not Romans in the empire ceases. You don't have this sense where Rome is an emperor of conquerors who have conquered their subjects in the provinces. And you see this shift happen in the third century where emperors acknowledge a universal responsibility toward all of their citizens, like the the, the text their proclamations inscriptions are very striking about this, um, that they are aiming to bestow universal benefits on all of their subjects and the provinces and everywhere. And so the fact that, um, it, you know, the imperial government supported is in many cases directly created and organized or, or at least funded these kinds of institutions is part of that um, you know, much more responsive Roman government that you start seeing in, in the later late antiquity. And it it, it, it starts in, I mean the church is in a sense co-opted into this. So when Constantine wants to distribute um, you know grain during a food shortage in one place, he will like make the bishop his like uh, conduit. And so he will send grain from imperial um, stores, to To be um, distributed through the churches, for example, to a region that was suffering, now this also benefits the churches because the bishop is now a patron who starts dispensing favors and this brings people into the church, which I think Constantine knew would happen like this is a right um, so all of these things sort of come together in this way
1: do we do we have a sense that that has inspired you know modern welfare states in any way? I'm I'm thinking that I know that the crusaders who start establishing things borrow, uh, how do we set up a hospital? They're kind of looking at Byzantine practice. But whether that survives into the modern world, I don't know.
2: Not really into the modern world, because by the time Western societies became even remotely interested in doing things like this... There was no East Roman state to look at. None of these institutions really survived. There were some equivalents in Ottoman Empire in certain uh, Muslim society, including the Ottoman Empire. Um, but I don't know if those were models. Now, uh, Tim Miller, who wrote the the book on the hospital in the Byzantine, the, the Birth of the Hospital in the Byzantine Empire, he does suggest that specifically for hospitals, that is, as places where professional medical care is provided to patients. Rather than say them being hospices where you just go and are tended to, made comfortable before you die. Right? Um, that that institution it survived until the end of of, of uh, you know Roman Constantinople it did, um, and was imitated in um, Renaissance Italy and early you know modern European states and and he claims to have found some connections. Uh, if you look at the end of his book, he talks about that. I'm not an expert on that aspect, uh, so I can't speak to that with um, sort of confidence. But it's possible that there are some connections there, yes.
1: Very good. Final question on Christianity Was the Byzantine countryside covered in churches at any point, uh, like, say, England is today? All right, you know, medieval England was. Um,
2: I mean, I don't have a mental picture of the density of churches in medieval England, so I can't compare it to that. But the the busying countryside, yes, eventually, um, much later than you might think. But by the ninth or tenth century, yes, there would have been uh, churches in very many places. I think we, we find could... their remains. Yeah, they're pretty dense. I think they're right. dense now. Someone might say they're not, but yeah.
1: No, I think it's partly because. Obviously you can't find many in Turkey that this question partly has come up that um or you know, not many standing, let's say.
2: Oh, standing. Well, yeah, but we don't measure the density by standing. No, exactly. no of course. Yeah. I, I did so a long, long time ago. I I did this on my island, uh, Lesbos, Lesvos, and I, I did it for about three-fifths of the island's surface. This is a pretty big island. And I was struck by just how many I found that were sort of, quote, early Christian that goes into like, you know, middle Byzantine times, but not all the way to the end, you know, after the uh, 11th century start getting different forms. But like from 400 to 900, there were a lot. I was impressed.
1: Very good. So our next uh, three questions are on tax and the economy. Um, Can you describe how the Byzantine tax system worked for an average village household? No. (laughs) Moving Um, on? (laughs) Yes.
2: (laughs) I mean, you know, you had to pay taxes. Now, there were... There were so many different forms of taxation that it, it's. I think it's impossible to talk about the average village household. Now, what we can do is sort of list all of the different types of taxes that they might have been paying. Uh, so, for example, just very, very broadly speaking, you did not pay an income tax like today because no state apparatus is in the business of knowing people's income at that time. There's just no way to track that. So taxes were assessed based on the amount of land that you had and sometimes um, adjusted for the quality of that land. And there were taxes on like a, a, a head tax or a hearth tax or whatever, like the household has a flat, a fixed sum that you pay or it goes by, the number of people, the number of slaves, or the number of animals, or farm animals, whatever. I mean, it, these things vary. Then, on top of that, you've got all kinds of other things like um, uh, labor uh, at yeah, corvées. Like you have to maintain this stretch of the road, or that bridge, or that fort, or or you know, do some kind of other kinds of labor for a state warehouse in the vicinity or something like that, or, um, to provide a recruit. Um, so the cost of a recruit is divvied up among a group of families. Anyway, and you can either provide a recruit from your, your people or, or pay the equivalent fraction of a cost or whatever. Now, not everyone paid all of those things, right? So the idea is that these are, um allocated in a way that they sort of balance out so that you know if you live next to a road you're in charge with maintaining the road but you don't have to do the recruit you don't have to provide the recruit cost or whatever uh so yeah it was it was a very complicated system uh there were lots and then you have all kinds of fees and and trade taxes and like if you want to do things like trade or whatever. So, they, you know, they all knew what they had to pay. And it, we, we don't know exactly how it worked. We don't know exactly what the tax rates were. Um, probably they amounted to a third of your production, like it, it, the equivalent of, you know, the third of your income, as it were. But if the land wasn't yours, if you were renting it, then you probably had rent on top of that. So
1: it was, yeah, complicated. <laughs> no, but that's helpful. I mean, you know, that gives people a, a start. They can go and find out more for themselves. I mean, so did this taxation system change radically across the life of the empire or was was it always roughly based on those principles?
2: Um, it depends on what your standard of measurement is for radically, because ultimately, taxes is like, well, the state or some of its agents or designated representatives come by and take some of your stuff um, in order to um, promote some common project. This is where um, Romania differs from other states. I mean, in the, the common understanding of what taxes were for. Uh, but that's a different question. But, but it's the most important one. And I think it's why people paid taxes uh, without much resistance. In fact, there's very, very little tax resistance um, in, throughout the history of the state. But the specifics about uh, the names of the taxes, no, they keep changing. Um, the funds, the administration, the all those things change from period to period. Who collects them? Um, is it the state itself? Is it... Like under the Comini, you start to have the Pronoia system, the pronia system, which you have intermediaries, the taxes go to those rather than directly for the state.
1: Ugh. Anyway, yeah, no, it changes a lot. <laughs> um, and was the Roman economy driven more by internal exchange or external exchange?
2: Internal, by far. Yeah I'm not not dismissing external but if you had to put a number to it um it, it would definitely not be balanced.
3: Yeah.
2: Well okay. until we get to the 15th century when <laughs> when like basically all trade is external because there's not much left there's not much internal anyway.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh Brilliant. Okay. So we, uh, we're we sort of mirroring the way we've done these episodes, actually. We've started with the state, we've moved on to the church, and now we're into the narrative. So this is... Excellent. I planned it that way. <laughs> I didn't just realize. Um, so we're into the narrative now. So maybe some of these questions will be quicker to answer. Um, so you've already answered this, that there's always a Senate. There's a Senate yes. throughout Roman history. So this question, though, is why do we hear about them sort of intimately involved in the elevation of justin and anastasius um, in the sixth century but that we don't seem to hear about them sort of gathering as a big group to make decisions during the macedonian period for example Uh, we do hear about them afterwards in fact you know i think it was michael
2: Angold who wrote about the seventh and eighth centuries that this is like the high point of senatorial power and so forth there are always moments when you have this lapse in imperial leadership and the Senate steps in. Um, now, and it continues to exist in some way or another until the end. Um, but how the group is constituted, um, whether it is a... So here's where the modern listener has to this sort of unpack his or her, her own sense of what the senate is are you thinking about like a specific body of of government like an institution of government that meets on its own and ha- like a separate ordo in the roman sense an order that has its own rules of precedence and how it meets involved um that's probably less likely the case um you know probably already from the fifth century like from the probably from the late fifth century on it's much more of a a group of, uh, of high officials former high officials um who have like inner there's an inner group an outer group an outer outer group and depending on circumstances that in ways that they were able to adjudicate, but we we can't see very well. Sometimes it's just an inner group that advises the emperor. Um, Sometimes in the Paleologan period, much later, it's essentially, quote, the aristocracy. Um, And it's possible that at that point, you might even get some fuzziness as to who is and who isn't, because the texts use the term Senate Sometimes you refer to a body that meets and advises, and sometimes just to a social class. And it's kind of difficult to know. Um, But anyway, it was there in one form or another uh, throughout the whole millennium. We shouldn't always imagine it as a a formal body, a legally constituted body that meets on formal occasions. Sometimes it probably did sometimes it was probably just a inner group of most influential or powerful men at any time and if they decided to meet for some matter and and you weren't one of them even though there was no legal or formal criterion they might like show you the door and say hey mike this isn't for you <laughs> go home even though you were like other people might call you a senator you know what i mean yeah so we need much more research on this. There's very little work has been done on the, on the history of the Senate.
1: Very good. Uh, what's your judgment on Belisarius, uh, second Agrippa, or just an overblown hero of Procopius's story? I mean, I'm intrigued by the reference to Agrippa of all people. <laughs>
2: um, I mean, in in the sense of like successful general who helped an emperor accomplish a great deal. And and loyal to that emperor, I think, is what they're getting at.
1: Ah, Not, not, I'll take over from you when you make a mistake.
2: Sure, sure, sure. Um, I have enormous respect for Agrippa in many ways. Um, And he did things that Belisarius didn't, was never asked to. Um, Agrippa was an incredible administrator and a man with such a work habit that I'm even impressed, but anyway, um, I I think Belisarius was a brilliant general in the first phase of his career, and after that, uh, not so much. I, I don't I don't think Belisarius is a mystery. Um, he seems to have been loyal to Justinian uh, for in an in a, an uncomplicated way for as long as Justinian was alive. I, the moment that there were suspicions that Justinian had died or was dying in the, uh, during the plague, um, I think it's entirely possible that Belisarius put out feelers to see if there would have been any support for him becoming emperor. Uh, but as long as Justinian was alive, he was loyal. Um, and he had a very good run. Um, and after that, um, not so much. Um, so I don't think there's much of a mystery about Belisarius to be solved.
1: Very good. Uh, this old question did uh, did Justinian leave the empire weaker than he found it? Um, uh, and then it kind of goes on, you know, was he, was it leaving? Did he leave the empire in a position where it would inevitably decline or or could it have recovered if you buy that he left it weaker, I guess?
2: So I think he did leave it in a weaker state. Um, Though that's based on mostly a structural analysis of the army and its dispositions and the fact that Justinian embroiled the Eastern Empire into more wars than was good for it. um, And that created in the long run um, the kind of matrix for uh, continued attrition, war, loss, etc. The kind of cycle that it enters into afterwards. Um, Others will will disagree about that, um, though. I and and have you know written more positively about um, Justinian in this regard. uh, Peter Heather and I think even Peter Sarris now, um, all the Peters. Um, And but I would want first for them to um, address the issues that Marion and I raised in our book on the field armies, where we actually track the number of units and armies that were available um, at at any time and find that Justinian left the core regions relatively undefended in order to expand um, the empire. And I I think our our study of the actual units and their placement proves that. Uh, So that's a debate that we will continue to have. Uh, Could it have recovered? Yeah, sure. I mean, the spiral of Defeat and decline that it entered into afterwards was the product of contingent circumstances. But uh, we, we, the way I think about it is, in other words, things could have gone very differently. But think about it this way um, in terms of your risk exposure, right? Justinian definitely increased the risk exposure of the Eastern Empire. And so, yeah, things could have gone differently, but they didn't. Um, and he you know, he 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 left it in a, a situation where the odds of something happening weren't, you know, 1%, but 10%. And 10% is small, but it's still 10%. And um, if you compound that over all of the, the fronts that he had opened, the possibilities for recurrence of the plague, for droughts, for whatever, whatever, your risk increases significantly. And as human beings, we're terrible at assessing risk. Um, but if you think about it that way, sort of, with, with some sort of clarity i I think you it's it's clear to me at least that Justinian increased its risk exposure
1: very good. Well, one of his successors who was trying to deal with the situation was Maurice or Marikios. Um What's your assessment of him as an emperor? um The listeners made a comparison to Nikifores Phocas. was he was Maurice uh, just an excellent general but not a good emperor?
2: not aware of maurice's military record i mean i i, I know I, I know everything that we know about his record but i don't know that there's anything in there that would suggest a comparison to Nikiforos Poka. Mm. so i wouldn't put it like that he he did have military experience that's all i'll say uh it was it was neither like particularly good nor nor bad um he was a fairly competent um emperor i think that he needs to be understood primarily as an administrator and specifically as an administrator who was trying to impose austerity um in particular on the armies at a time when um resources were like revenue was declining and because of the emperor have the empire because of justinian the empire now has Problems in Spain, in North Africa, in Italy, in the Balkans, and in the East. And with fewer resources, he's trying to kind of juggle the pieces and keep it all together, and he's having to make cutbacks. And those cutbacks hurt him. This is in part why the re- rebellion happens. It leads to his downfall, which is catastrophic consequences, uh, ultimately. Um, but emperors, uh, you know... Um, leadership that imposes austerity for long periods of time are never popular i, I will want your listeners to what's happening in in the uk right now um you know at some point people are going to dislike you for it and the people of constantinople disliked him enough that when the when the executioner came it didn't really stand up for him so yeah, You know, also, he spent too much on his family. There were some vanity projects. That doesn't look good, too, when you're trying to cut back. You know, you're cutting back on the humanities, but building some glitzy, um, you know, observation post for VIPs at the football stadium. So um, that doesn't look good. Um, and then that hurt him. So politically, not the most astute, um, a competent administrator, but in the end didn't work.
1: So after that came the, uh, Arab invasions. And then the next question is to what extent do the Islamic sources allow us to reconstruct the events of those, uh, conquests and what methodology did you use to influence your use of those sources in the book?
2: So the Islamic sources are a very mixed bag, and you have some that have very good information, uh, you know, obviously mixed in with some problematic information, and others that are just fantastical. Um, So there is... I'm not a primary expert uh, on these sources, and so I rely on what I take to be the most persuasive... the most persuasive analyses of who's credible here and who's not on the analysis of their sources, because many of these sources, or all of these sources are much later, and they're quoting earlier sources, but to what degree accurately is open to question. So this is, there's no simple uh, answer here. Um, you just have to, yeah, it's it's brute force. You have to read a lot of scholarship on these sources and try to Make sense of it, and there are fortunately some very good historians from, from uh, you know Fred Donner and Hugh Kennedy to others who have done this with those sources, and so I rely on them. Um, there's a lot of good information in Tabari. There's a lot in Baladuri and 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 so forth. Um, others are just much more fanciful. In general, the more information, the more narrative information and juicy details that they have about some events, the less reliable they are.
1: Fair enough, fair enough. Um, Now, this is a fun question, I think. How did the public uh, in Constantinople or the provinces assess the quality of a usurper before lending them their support? Um, You know, how... How widely were sort of personalities known beyond, um, you know, the palace itself um, in some cases?
2: Well, the ones who were more actively supported uh, by the populace at large were better known. Um, but before we get to that, let me just say that the general... the the general attitude of the population was more for or against the incumbent emperor than for or against a rival. If the incumbent emperor was unpopular, it's far more likely that people will side with a, um, a challenger kind of like attributing to them all the ideal qualities that they want to have in someone. And then once that person becomes emperor, they realize what they got. (laughs) Um, but it's, It's very similar to the ways in which, um, uh, well, I I don't want to give away professional secrets here, but um, (laughs) (laughs) no, really, like, so consider the following situation. There's a department that wants to hire a faculty member. And there's someone who is on the staff um, in that department for a year or two uh, who's in a, a a uh, contingent position and they're applying for the permanent job and then you have some outsiders who are applying for the permanent job so being the insider is often assumed to be like uh, an advantage but not necessarily i have seen very many cases where you're now a known quantity that is your advantages and your disadvantages are known and you might be pretty good at what you do but you lack the mystique of potentially being able to do everything that the department wants. Whereas when you look at an outside candidate whom you don't know in person, you look at the CV, they tend to look much more impressive. Um, and then the more you get to know them, you realize they're just human beings with advantages and disadvantages. And I suspect that this happens a lot in, in this context, where if you're very, uh, you know, turned off by the existing regime, you will tend to imagine that the, you know, shinier new thing that's, that's making itself known in the political sphere will solve all of your problems. And so you will give it your support because it's, you know, making a lot of noise and doing exciting things. Um so that that it tends to happen in in politics to even electoral politics and in democracies as well. So for the most part, unless a challenger has like a really established reputation, like Nikiforos Focas we mentioned earlier, who was an absolute known quanti- quantity uh, for many triumphs in the capital um, and, you know, as a general in the East and so forth. They knew what they were getting. They also knew what they were losing when he was killed and nobody stood up for him because he turned out to be not not not, not so astute as a, pol- a politician. Um, did they know what they were getting with Simiskis? Probably much less so. But they got someone better than they probably thought they were. Um, so I think that's the dynamic. But a lot of people were known in advance um, without having that kind of name recognition. Um, it was difficult to make headway in a rebellion. And this is also why emperors are so concerned to make sure no one has that kind of name recognition or to, to spread the you know accomplishments around so that you don't build someone up to the point where they, they're they already known to the people as someone who could be a rival.
1: Very good. Um, uh, this uh, listener's thinking about uh, the patriarch, Photius's is uh, bibliotheca. Is this where he wrote down all the books he'd read or hmm. all the books he had or whatever? Um, uh, so it, lots of things he mentions are now lost. So the question is, what would an educated reader in Constantinople, in say the year 1200, have had access have had access to that we've now lost? In terms well,
2: of lots more facts. than we have. Yeah. Um, I take it the intent of the question is about ancient sources rather than, you know, later ones, because I mean, and, and here it depends on your priorities, uh, because there are lots of histories from I don't know, the 10th century or something that we lost that we would like, but the classicists mm. would scream if... <laughs> yes. Anyway. Um, if, by the way, Photius doesn't mention or discuss all of the works that he read there. For example, he doesn't talk about Homer. Um, he certainly knew Homer, but that's why, like everybody did, and that's why he doesn't have a chapter on it. So these are the sources that are like the non-obvious things to mm. read, because he has... If you're reading... The Bibliotheca the 10,000 books in its Greek title. Um, it's because you've you read enough that you can read this, and what you've read are all the sort of standard classical stuff. Okay. Um, so they would have had, I think, I this is read, um, a former student of mine, Scott Kennedy, wrote an article where I think he showed that they had a whole lot more of Callimachus. Um, than we do. There's a third uh, century BC Alexandrian poet, the leading Hellenistic poet. And I think they had much more uh, of his works than we do. And we also know of other um, authors who survived um and were lost later on, like the orator Iperides, Hyperides, you might call him. I don't know what it is in English, but mm-hmm. um we know that a manuscript of his survived and was destroyed in a siege in the fifteenth century. Um, so, yeah, there were a number of classical sources and later Byzantine sources that, that they had that we don't.
1: Are there any Byzantine sources you're thinking of that stand out as like, oh, if only we had that? In terms like of all histories.
2: the histories of Basil II's reign?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we know they existed and they've disappeared or we assume they existed?
2: Um, I'm pretty sure they did, at least, at least one or two of them, um, because... Um, of the way that Skalitzi's distributes his information. Skalitzi's is getting his information right. about Basel's reign clearly from a much more detailed source that he then cut up and distributed in weird ways. And I think that the reign was getting so long that at some point he just said, you know what? I'm just gonna cut ahead to 1014.
1: Right. Okay.
2: And 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 at 1014 he then starts having this really detailed narrative of the fall of, of Bulgaria so all of that makes me think that there was one or more sources that had much more detail about all of that period. And he's like, I'm not going to add a hundred more pages. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Right. Very good. Well, that's perfect segue. Cause the next question is about Basil II. And comparing I him comparing him to Elizabeth I of England, um, in her world, being an heir or having an heir was dangerous to the heir, <laughs> to the throne. Um, and would lead to plots and so on. So was this the kind of calculation that Basil might have been thinking of, particularly having grown up uh, under focus and Zimis-Kies, Um And and the listener also points out that after they died, the succession went smoothly. So, you know, maybe that, that says that their plan for the succession worked out fine without needing to nominate a specific adult successor. Sure. So these
2: are inherently dangerous positions to be in. Um, And I don't think that there would have been any way in England during the reformation um, or at any point in East Roman history to be, to make non-dangerous choices for the succession. Mm. Basel must have known as a fact that his dynasty would go extinct um, if he did not have, if he did not produce heirs, and certainly about toward the end of his life, because he was only his brother who succeeded him, let's say smoothly, sure, but he had only daughters, and those daughters were past the age where they could have children. So as a fact, he knew that the dynasty would go extinct, but he made no provisions for what, uh, they people should, you know, what the political world should do after that point, and quite possibly, I mean, this is now why he didn't like adopt someone or designate a different heir or something. That, that's a question you can ask about any emperors, I and mean, most of them were very reluctant to do that um, if they had no um, male sons. Uh, I mean, no, no, no sons, you know, before they, uh, you know, biological sons before they died. Um, Otherwise, they were very reluctant to do that for the obvious reasons. But um, it shows to me that a lot of these emperors understood that there was a deep um, political culture that would produce, one way or another, someone would be appointed and the, the system would carry on that the polity was not just a monarchy and many points in in the history um you know emperors die without heirs and someone in the palace the senate meets a, a general steps forward whatever whatever and there's a smooth succession anyway and now smooth okay someone might get punched in the face like when justin the first becomes emperor in union 5 uh, uh, 18. Someone got punched in the face. I think that was the worst thing that happened, right? And it was contested, and they found someone. So this happens often enough that I think an emperor doesn't necessarily have to, again, like reach the a long arm into the future to to to, to um, decree how it's going to happen. Anyway,
3: yeah.
1: yeah, we actually spoke to uh, Peter Sarris last week about Justinian and. Ah. He, he was making that point to the listeners that if you do choose a successor, all the courtiers start sniffing around them and paying less attention to you. And if you yeah. become decrepit, how long till they shove you in a chamber and lock the door and say, we don't need you anymore? So you are better off keeping power close to your chest, which is what Basil did. Uh, exactly. In, and this yeah.
2: was an experience that even Augustus, the first emperor, had when essentially he ran out of heirs and had to bring back Tiberius, who was not his first choice. And it was super awkward because (laughs) at every occasion, like Augustus was like even publicly saying, you were not my first choice. And Tiberius is a very stoic old guy. He's like, he's got to sit there. and But toward the end of his life, Augustus was gradually sort of retiring and stepping back, and kind of redirecting the the traffic of political activity to Tiberius, who's a very experienced and 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 competent man already. Um, And Augustus kind of faded out. Um, And okay, that worked in that very tense situation, but it worked. But I imagine that lots of emperors just don't want to deal with that. Yeah, Um, and it's dangerous for them.
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, jumping ahead to the Komni Noi, uh, how do you assess John II Second Nos as an
2: emperor? He's a pretty
1: good emperor. Um,
2: military emperor, he spent almost all of his reign running around, mostly Asia Minor and the Balkans. Um, didn't like accomplish that much, but perhaps that wasn't the point. Um, he kept his subjects safe and they appreciated that. Um, and he also stayed away from Constantinople so much that they probably appreciated that too. <laughs> um, so not that much to say, which is in part why they didn't say that much about him.
1: But the I, I discussed at length why the Komnenoi failed to uh, uh, remove the Turks from Anatolia or just destroy the Seljuks at Iconium, Konya, but... A listener insisted on asking you why. Why did the Comedy 9 not eliminate the the Seljuks?
2: Well, it's not that they didn't try. I, I just don't think it was within their means. There were m- many moments when they tried, and um, I, I m- not even to dismantle them. It, it was very. It proved very difficult to even nibble around the edges, which they did but it was difficult and you'd have to hope for a kind of surprise win, a kind of Belisarius in North Africa kind of win. And I think that's what Manuel Komninos was aiming for um, in in 1176. Um, Just like if you can beat them in one decisive battle, then you might be able to roll it all back. The person who came close to doing that um had no interest in it and this was frederick barbarossa when he went through on the third crusade he pummeled them to sort of crush them and shoved them aside the thing is he was just interested in getting through mm. if they had said to him hey look you know you can just <laughs> you can just come through no problem he would have thought thank you i'll just come right through um that he was just not interested in setting up some you know Christian state in Asia Minor. He was moving on. But he had an army the size of which no Komnenos was able to raise. Uh, so, you know, all these you know, German knights too and all of that.
1: Didn't end well for them. Uh, why did the Komnenoi move to vlachernai the palace at the other end of the city, away from the Hippodrome and the Sophia? But they didn't move there in the way it's usually understood.
2: They they also kept up the great palace. Um, So lots of ceremonies took place there, um, as well as that Lachernai. So it's better to think um, of their court as having these two poles. Um, I'm not entirely sure that we've explained why they built up Lachernai in such a way uh, to begin with. Now, that part of Constantinople was um, Was built up with monasteries and churches and endowments by the extended community family, starting with Alexius. So in a certain sense, they had already made that their sort of signature neighborhood um, uh, in, in Constantinople, um, and they presumably wanted to be near all of those endowments. But they actually weren't the ones who started this. Um, I seem to recall that... Michael VII, Seventh um, had also he was also at Blachernai uh, at at some time. So this seems to have been a palace, a pre-existing palace, um, especially in the 11th century that emperors sometimes stayed at. Uh, that for some reason became the second pole. I don't right now know why. Though, if this this happened in the 11th century, I'll say this that. The 11th century is one of these um, sort of famous periods of intense popular participation in politics and people rising up and crowds outside the Hippodrome and the Great Palace. So there's so many times the Great Palace and the Hippodrome was sort of crowded with protesters and whatever, that it might have made sense for the emperors sometimes to go stay at the, uh, well, not exactly a country palace, but closer to the country.
1: Yep, very good. Um, did Slavic people uh, call uh, East Romans Greeks as the Western Europeans came to?
2: Yes, they did. And in this respect, as in many other respects, um, Slavic peoples before the 13th century should be understood as having closer relations with, with Western Europe than with Byzantium. The the fact that we've aligned the two is a product of modern politics that has to do with sort of Russia as the patron of sort of Slavic Orthodox countries um, in early modern Europe, and also with the Cold War. Um, if you don't want your history to be governed by the Cold War and like modern empires, and you you, you go look back then. It's pretty clear to me, but also Christian Raffensberger has written a lot about this and convincingly that Slavic people all the way into Rus had lo- lots of very dense contacts with me- the medieval West, even you know, not trade but intermarriage and you know dynastic alliances and things like that, and that we shouldn't be aligning them uh, with Byzantium as some sort of you know Orthodox commonwealths or anything like that. That that's a much later
1: product. So, the calling them Greeks is a is a Latin influence. Oh yes, almost certainly. Okay, very good. Uh, why was the post-Manuel period so disastrous for the Romans? Um, uh, particularly given the period just before the Arab siege of seven seventeen was seemingly equally chaotic, um, with I think seven different emperors from. Justinian II to Leo III, why did the Romans survive that period and then collapse in, in 1204?
2: Well, didn't we discuss this in our narrative?
1: We, this did come up, yeah.
2: Yeah, and also when we talked about the good and bad emperors and, and so forth, I eh? because this is a very big topic, I would be inclined to refer our listeners to that. Um, yeah. If, if one point uh, is required of me um, on this now, I will say that the world of the later 12th century is much more multipolar than that of the um, early 8th century or, or whatever. In the sense that, you, not only do you have, um, you know, Muslims to your east and Bulgarians to your north, which is exactly the same situation. That Uh, But you also have um, Latin types and specifically Crusaders showing up at random moments just to throw a wrench into everything. If in 717, you know, Leo III was facing not only the enemies that he faced, and by the way, the the, the Bulgars were his allies uh, at that time, not enemies. And he, you also throw in the Fourth Crusade at that time. Um, it it wouldn't have gone well. Um, so th- there's a real difference in the overall geostrategic situation, um, as well as the just the infrastructural capabilities of enemies at this time. Um, the, the, the Venetians... Look, even the Fourth Crusade would not have gotten anywhere if the Venetians didn't have specific technologies for attacking the sea walls of Constantinople. Mm. Uh, who would have had the Arabs didn't have that um in the um early 8th century. So there are those differences too. B- beyond that for like what was quote generally going wrong at the time, I will refer the um audience to our previous discussions.
1: Yeah. So when the uh Fourth Crusade was at the walls, and Alexius Angelos ran out of money to pay them, Uh, why didn't he offer them land in lieu of money? And I I like the listeners written, here, have Nicaea, just get away from my damn walls.
2: So this is a very interesting question, and very astute. Um, But here's the problem. The Fourth Crusade was not like one king and his army. It was a whole gang of bandits and it's not as if you could have appeased a significant number like okay you give nicaea to one of them okay there's 16 others who want something and you see the problem emerge as soon as the um the crusade takes constantinople and they have to divide everything up this was a major just just the division, in theory, forget about how it worked or didn't work in practice, in theory, the division um, required a committee of know, a couple dozen people to draw up lists and a par- partition everything. And we have this document that partitions everything because they're the Venetians and they're the, you know, the Montferratians and the, the French and the Italians and the and everything. And and so uh, this would not have been practical because, I mean, on on like Alexius IV's part, he would have had to give away most of the remaining lands to appease all of these people, especially if they, if one of them figured out that, oh, he's willing to settle with land, and then suddenly there would have been a, a land grab, uh, which it, it happened anyway. Like, think of the Peloponnese. The Peloponnese wasn't given, <clears throat> excuse me, wasn't given, uh, wasn't uh, allotted to anyone in the partition it was just taken by a bunch of french marauders who showed up
1: mm. yeah i mean and because i've now studied that period to to answer the listener's question specifically the latin lords would not have gone i will accept a parcel of land that is specifically worth the amount we agreed they wouldn't have been satisfied with that. They would have said, I want to be lord of Nicaea and I want to be lord of Thessaloniki and and all the lands around it in exchange for this debt being forgiven, even though that land would be worth much more than the specific number that he owed because that was their status.
2: Exactly. And that these titles are hereditary. Mm. In, In other words, you lose those lands and all you keep is some you know distant vague nominal sovereignty like yes i will acknowledge you as my lord or whatever but you lose those lands for good whereas money you know you pay it now and it leaves but you know it's the roman economy it generates more um so yeah no that was not in the cards
1: no now this next question is is a bit subjective of the listener's sense of things Uh, It seems Byzantium rarely had long-term cultural or strategic allies. Its allies seem to be more short-term or tactical rather than long-term and strategic. Uh, Is that true? I think is probably the, the question, but they're saying, is that true of all the states at that time or is that specific to Byzantium?
2: Well, what's your sense about this you've already covered a
1: long uh, i mean i would have thought you'd say venice is a long-term cultural and strategic ally until it isn't um right the, the, you lots of people in the west were long-term strategic allies culturally and and what have you until they weren't it's it's the when the world changes when the latins all start coming east that, yes. that this conflict breaks out i mean yeah the papacy was, was exactly. an ally for centuries.
2: Um, I, I think a lot rides here on what long term means. Yeah. <laughs> because in a certain sense, in all of history, alliances are contingent and I mean, from the standpoint of eternity short term. Um in the case of Constantinople, we happen to have a state that lasts for so long that long term can mean a couple of centuries mm. but is it that long term when that ally then becomes one of your worst enemies mm. um so i would say that in general alliances are short term even in like the, think of the modern world like they they do they come and they go and even if you're living during a period when you think well there's no way that this state would ally itself with that state yeah no you know it can happen. Um, so I think it's generally true. I don't think it's unique to this one.
1: No, I think it's very contingent on your borders, because I'm thinking Byzantium and the Fatimids had a very long-term good relationship, because they didn't. They were only very rarely in physical contact with each other. So exactly. it's much easier to be friends with someone that you never have to see. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the point is that they lasted so long that eventually they went to war with everyone. Um, Yes. How long, roughly, did it take Romans in Anatolia, living under Turkish rule, to stop seeing themselves as Romans? How long? Um,
2: They didn't stop seeing themselves as Romans. Do They still do, the ones that are left. So, (laughs) I mean... Unless they convert to Islam, if they convert to Islam, and so we're talking about the period roughly between you know 1100 and 1900, they normally are no longer room in various ways. Though there are groups, there, there are groups of Turks today in modern Turkey right now who loosely vaguely call themselves a room because their grandparents or great-grandparents were and so like in the pontus region or whatever and there's their spoken turkish has some greek you know residues in it something like that And it's very colorful you know it's, it's a sort of ethnographic color um but the greek orthodox um, citizens of, of Turkey are the, the sort of ethnic room component. Now, there's a very small group today, but 100 years ago, it wasn't small. 100 years ago is very large. Well, no, we are in 2024.
1: <laughs> well, yeah.
2: 102 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> 102 years ago, it was a pretty large group. Um, you know, modern wars got in the way and you know, other, you know, nation-building in Turkey and nation-building in Greece and so forth. Uh, But no, they remained a very large group, and they retained their name, Rum, Romei, Romy, uh, for the whole duration of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, So, uh, yeah, I mean, those, in a sense, are the last East Romans. Um, The West Romans we have only in the city of Rome itself. In the East, we have all of these people, um, but their history has not yet been told. I have to say, like, they are a bibliographical blind spot because modern nationalities have intervened. Greece wants to see them as Greek. Um, and um, Western European scholarship likes to think of them as orthodox and as not having an ethnic identity because they refuse to acknowledge Romanness as that. But in all of the sources that I have looked at from the Ottoman Empire, and, and there are many, and there, there are people looking at this now, you see um, Orthodox people described by their ethnic so their Serbs and Vlachs and Rum and Bulgarians, and all of these people are Orthodox, but they're they're clearly identified by their by their ethnic name. So I, I think that continues into the Ottoman Empire. Very good.